Well, do you like good food? Now, my sense is that if I know our community well, a lot of you respond uh, with great enthusiasm, absolutely. And already your mind is going to that cafe in Paris and the bread and the butter there that was incredible. Or maybe you're going to that little, little um, restaurant in Asia where you get the best beef noodle soup. Or maybe you're thinking about your grandmother's cooking and saying, yes, I love her cooking. That is what good food is. And what's interesting is if we were to get in a circle and talk about good food, which I'm sure some of you have on a regular basis, it's interesting because what you think is really good food, your friends sitting two rows behind you would say, oh, actually, it's way too salty. Or your other friends sitting two rows in front of you would say, ooh, that's mm, too creamy, it's too sweet. Uh, that's good food. Um, as we continue our series to the book of Leviticus, while for us the question of what is good food is up for debate, as we continue our series to the book of Leviticus, as we'll see today, the question of what is good food or to use the vernacular Leviticus, what is clean and unclean food actually is actually dictated by God. It actually is not up for debate. God is going to show his people and the Israelites what good food, or again, clean and unclean food actually is. Now that God would dictate for his people what is good food, what is clean food, what is unclean food, for some of us might seem very odd. Why would God care about that? As we've just talked about, food can be a very personal thing. You might think pizza should be deep dish, Chicago style. No, no, no. It should be thin crust like New York. And so we have this banter back and forth about what good food is. We understand, you know, we just let it go. You like that. I like this. That's fine. And so that God would kind of speak into food seems mm, a bit odd. But we have to admit that food is very communal as well. That is, food often marks and even makes a people. And so God's people, as we'll see today, are distinct. And that penetrates even to the food that they eat. Let me set up our text for this morning by reminding you where we are in the book of Leviticus, or kind of why we're in the book of Leviticus in the overarching narrative of Scripture. In the book of Exodus, which is right before the book of Leviticus, there's this mm, promise, but then a kind of a problem. Do you remember in Exodus, which is right before Leviticus, God says to his people, I will dwell among the Israelites, that is his people, and be their God. I will dwell among them. And then in chapter 40 of Exodus, towards the very end of Exodus, there's this description of God setting up his tabernacle, this portable home, if you will, of where God will dwell with his people. That's all well and good, but if you remember the first week we were in Leviticus, we said, "Mm, that's kind of a problem. Like, how is this going to happen? God says he's going to dwell amongst his people, but the people are very much unholy and they're very much sinful. So how is God going to dwell amongst his people? The answer, the book of Leviticus. Second week, we looked at some holy acts, that is, some rituals and some sacrifices. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the holy labor of the priests. And so through those two things, God's going to help dwell amongst his people. But there's one more aspect as well. This idea of holiness is not just for the priests, but it's for the whole populace, the general people as well. And so we're going to look at this idea of how the people themselves, the average person, is called to be holy. And what I want to do as we walk through Leviticus 11 is try to answer four questions. The first question I want to answer is, well, what's the call on the people's life? Because again, the focus here is on just the people, just the average normal people. What is the call on the people's life? Well, let's go look at Leviticus 11.45. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. We just read it. God says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So answer the first question, what is the call on the people's life is just be holy. Remember the first week we spent some time thinking about what does holiness mean? Holiness is this idea of being separate, of being pure, of being set apart. 
We talked about how God is holy because there's this, there's this chasm. He is the creator. We're the creation. And we can't bridge that gap. He is completely other than us. And so in a similar vein, God's people are called to be separate, to be set apart. That's the what. Why, though? Why are God's people called to be holy? Well, it's in the text. I don't know if you see it here. Why are they called to be holy? Isaac, why are they called to be holy? Help me. I'm sorry, who's on slides? That's okay, that's true, that's good. If you could just help me out, go to the next slide. Why are they called to be holy? There's two reasons in the text here. Uh, first number of reason is because of God's character. Exactly, because I am holy. If you look at the text, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt to, to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So the first reason is because God himself is holy. God's character is one reason they're called to be holy. The second reason is, well, because he has graciously redeemed them. Who is this Lord? He's the one who brought them up out of Egypt. He has drawn them into relationship with himself. So those two twin realities kind of lead into the why. Why are they called to be holy? Because God himself is holy and he has brought you into relationship with himself. This makes sense. So, for example, imagine you are in relationship with a very exclusive university or uh, uh, academy or a very special um, institution. You're now in relationship with them. Therefore, the call is for you then to go out and reflect something of the qualities of that very exclusive institution, that very fancy uh, association. You're called to reflect. And so God says, look, I'm calling you into relationship with myself the holy God, I've redeemed you and brought you then into relationship with me. You go out and you act and you live in holiness. So there's that first theme. Why? Because God is holy. Set yourselves apart because I have set you apart. The second theme here, and don't miss this, it's a little bit woven, a little bit more discreetly, you might miss it, but the second theme that's woven here as to why there be holy is this idea of grace. Do you see the redemption that's brought out here? I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. God graciously redeems his people. Do you remember the book of Exodus? God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. He redeems them. That's grace. They didn't earn that. And he brought them into relationship with himself. So this is so important. Don't miss this. God's call to be holy is in response to God's grace. Or another way to say it is, the reality of God's grace comes before God's call to holiness. Look at the text. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. That's grace. In response to my grace, now go live holy lives. In other words, it is so important that we see that grace precedes God's commands, that grace precedes God's law, what's coming next. We'll talk about that in a second. In other words, the text doesn't say, be holy, righteous, pure, and set apart, and then we'll talk. And then we'll see if you're holy enough. And if you are, maybe you can, you, you can be my people. That is an inversion of what we see here. Rather, God has graciously redeemed them. You're my people. I'm your God. Now, in response, live holy lives. Obedience flows from grace. It does not buy it. Obedience flows from grace. It does not buy it. So that's the, that's the second question. That's the, <laughs> that's the second question. The third question, how? How? does um, this manifest itself? So we've seen the what, be holy. Why? Well, in response to who God is, it's out of grace. How then do we live this way? How then do we live this way? Well, now the answer is Leviticus chapter 11. That is, 
in response to grace. Now we're going to get into some details here. I put the, 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 the page number so that you can skim this because we're going to go through this rather quickly. So what? Be holy. Why? Because I'm holy and because it's in response to grace. What does it look like? How do you do that? Leviticus 11. Take a look. Now, in Leviticus 11, he's talking about food laws. And there's three spheres, which we actually sung about in our second song. The, the, the first sphere is the land, verse 2. Of all the animals that live on the land. We'll come back to this. So there's talking about land animals. In verse 9, the second sphere is water animals. And then finally, there's the air or the sky. Uh, he's going to talk about birds. He's going to talk about flying insects, okay? So how do you live this out? Well, here's some food laws in three areas. That is land, water, and sky. Let's just briefly go back and look at some of these food laws. Let's start with the land. So chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, that's our sphere, these are the ones you may eat. Verse 3. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. So you can eat a cow. Okay? But the text continues, there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof. You must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud and does not have a, does not have a divided hoof, it's ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. So in terms of the land, you've got to have both of these criteria met, namely, as we saw in verse uh, 4, excuse me, in verse 3, any animal that has a divided hoof and chews the cud. Now, if you only meet one but not the other, for example, like a camel, unclean, don't eat it. So in terms of the land, you can eat a cow, but don't eat a camel. Second, let's go to the second sphere, water. You can eat trout. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. All right, but you can't eat shellfish. Verse 10, but all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins or scales whether among all the swarming things or among all the living creatures in the water, you are to regard them as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. That's the second sphere, water. You can eat trout, but not shellfish. The last sphere is the sky. And he says, you can't eat bees. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. However, you can eat crickets. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat, those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these, you may eat any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, or grasshopper. Now, the question that you might be thinking is, why these animals? Like, why can't you eat a bee, but you can eat a cricket? Why can you eat a cow, but not a camel? There have been different uh, theories set forth over the years. Some would suggest that there's health reasons here. Like, some of these are, are more dangerous to eat. But to be honest, even if you eat uncooked, like beef, that could be dangerous. Some would suggest, well, there's you know, pagan religions that are linked with some of these animals, so you shouldn't be associated with them. But we know, remember, the bull, the cow, was used just a few chapters earlier by God's people to commit idolatry, and it's allowed to eat. So that idea kind of falls short. I think at this point, we, we don't really know why these specific animals. Let's do a quick recap. In Exodus, excuse me, in Exodus um, Leviticus 11, you see these three questions. What? Be holy. Why? It's in response to my character and my gracious redemption. How? Well, we looked at all these different ways, how, and these specific uh, food laws. Last question, but why not? That is, why don't Christians follow this today? Well, 
The answer, briefly, is, comes from Mark 7. In the Gospel of Mark, in the New Testament, and Jesus is going to speak into this. He says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered his house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of their body. Now listen, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So Jesus responds to this. And so Christians today, we don't follow that because Jesus has said, look, look at your heart. That's the seat. That's the locus of evil. We've got to deal with the heart. So we think about this idea of significance. You might say, okay, that was interesting. Never read that before. But um, you might be saying there's, there's no application, right? There's no significance. We saw it. Jesus in Mark 7 says, don't worry about it. So we're done, right? Yes and no. I mean, yes, clearly what Jesus says, what Mark records there, all food is clean. And we receive with thanksgiving to the glory of God. But before we jettison, before we push back and, and kind of throw away at Leviticus 11, I think there's something very applicable from Leviticus 11 that's unbelievably helpful for us today in our cultural location. So yes, I actually think there is key significance here. There is a professor that would give extra credit to his students in grad school if they would live one week in light of the Levitical laws and journal what that experience was like. Now think about that. Would you want to, from even what we've read today, live one week following the Levitical laws. And there's more than just food laws. There's laws about not wearing clothing with mixed fiber. There's the, the Sabbath idea, etc. It's interesting, one of the students who took this up and got the extra credit, who tried his best to live according to the Levitical law for one week, he was sharing, he said, look, when I did this, I had to think about all aspects of my life. What am I wearing? What am I eating? My schedule. Is this honoring to God? In other words, by thinking through the Levitical laws, food, time, even what you're wearing, he said, I have to think about God all the time. In other words, his faith was not just a one-and-done action. It was pervading all aspects of his life. Again, thinking before he ate, thinking what he wore, thinking about how he spent his time. And I think that is very much significant for us today. That is, we cannot compartmentalize faith. We cannot compartmentalize compartmentalize God. Early on in the pandemic, this is over two years ago, um, I don't know about you, I felt very awkward wearing a mask. Just kind of a weird experience for me. But I think the first time I wore a mask in public, it was super awkward for two reasons. The first time I wore a mask in public, I actually wore a mask in a bank. Now, we're like, yeah, what's the big deal? No, think 2019. Think early 2020. The only, there's only one reason you wear a mask in a bank, right? And so I'm doing that. And I felt really awkward doing that. Ah, we just got it. Second, so talking with the, t- the teller, it was awkward not only for the location, but the teller was wearing a mask as well. And it, look, it was super awkward for all of us, and I get it. 
But every time he would talk to us, he'd pull his mask down and talk to us and then put it and listen and pull it down and talk to us. And I'm like, and I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know. But I'm like, I'm not sure that's how it's supposed to work. I think you're supposed to keep it on particularly when you're, when you're speaking. Sometimes we treat Jesus not so much as a mask, but as a jacket. We put our Jesus jacket on sometimes and take it off other times. We compartmentalize God. So for example, Sunday morning. Oh, Sunday. You, got, you all got your Jesus jacket on right now. You know, best behavior, love the Lord, want to worship him, thinking pure thoughts and all that. But Tuesday night, playing poker with the boys, take that Jesus jacket off. Right? Or think about um, when you're going through a difficult time. Like, it's real. It's a dark season. Put that Jesus jacket on and let, him, let may you feel his embrace and love and comfort. Yes. But things are going well, take it off. He's so, so, so con, con, um, restrictive. Or end of the year, charitable giving, put your Jesus jacket on. We want to be kind and loving. Thinking about buying a car, take my Jesus jacket off. I do what I want because it's my money. The challenge that I think Leviticus 11 brings before us is, hey, are we compartmentalizing our faith in Christ? Are we treating him like a jacket you put on sometimes and take off other times? As that person talked about walking through Leviticus, trying to follow the Levitical laws, he had to think about God in everything. He couldn't compartmentalize God, even what he ate, what he wore, how he spent his time. Always thinking about God. This is a word for us, I think, particularly in our culture. Because even though this is thinning out, I get it, I still feel like for where we're at, there's a little bit of cultural Christianity in our part of the world. And I get it, it's fading, and that might be generational, but there's still an undercurrent of cultural Christianity. And so what Leviticus 11 is reminding us of, you can't compartmentalize God, that's a good word. Today is the first Sunday in the NFL season, and so a lot of us are very excited. We're thinking about not Levitical laws, not about Jesus, but our fantasy team. We're thinking, how are they going to do first week, first Sunday? And so a lot of us are very excited about that. And if you think about football, I think it's fair to say there's probably about three different types of fan in our culture. The first fan is a zealot. <laughs> this, this guy goes to every game. He wears one of his many jerseys to the game. He might even wear a jersey on Wednesday just because that's what he does. Um, he knows the entire roster of the team. He thinks about them during the week. He reads articles about his team. Like He's a zealot. The second type of fan is, uh, you know, goes to the game when it's convenient. Might wear a jersey. He has a jersey. But, you know, might not wear it because it just depends on what's convenient. And finally, he knows the star players. That's about it. The third type of fan is the kind of playoffs-only type of fan. Watches once a year towards the end of the season, particularly if they get in the playoffs, almost certainly if they get in the Super Bowl. Doesn't own any gear, but would buy some if, for example, the Colts won. They'd buy it because everyone else is buying it. Doesn't really know any of the players. Does know the QB, though. Does know the game of the QB. And so our culture looks at these fans, for example, for the Colts, and says, yeah, that's just how it is. There's just different types of fans. You can be any level of fan, but you're still a fan. And I think this kind of bleeds into our culture in terms of thinking about following Jesus. Our culture says, you know, there's just kind of multiple types of Christians. There's that zealot Christian, attends every Sunday, might even dress differently on a Sunday, wears their Sunday best, knows the characters of the Bible, and might even read the Bible during the week. So there's like zealots. Average Christian goes to church when it's convenient, knows key characters, uh, Adam, Moses, David, Jesus, definitely knows Jesus, but doesn't really think about them during the week, doesn't read the Bible during the week. Then there's what has been dubbed the CEO Christian, the Christian and East, Christmas and Easter only Christian. They come twice or once a year, and they do their thing, and that's what it is. 
while, of course, there's a spectrum of maturity when we follow Jesus, there are not varying levels of Christianity. Like, it's not, hey, I'm just going to be an average Christian who follows Jesus when I can work him into my schedule. But our cultural Christianity wants us to believe, you know, it's okay. Like, you can be a zealot, just don't go too crazy, but you can definitely be average, and you can just kind of be whenever it's convenient for you, but you're still a Christian. Ah, the gospel calls us for something more. I mean, even Leviticus 11 says, no, no, God is the ruler over all arenas of your life. Uh, he is king over every area of your life, and he calls you to bow the knee to him in everything, even what you eat, for example, for the Israelites. Following Jesus is not a hobby. It's not like we just get a little bit of Jesus juice in our life when we want to. No, no, no. Jesus himself says some very stark language in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus calls the crowd along and his disciples and said, hey, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. This is not hobby language when you talk about life and death and dying to yourself and living for Jesus. Take away from Leviticus, these Levitical laws about food, which seems so foreign, is no, no, no. Following Jesus cannot be a hobby. It was never meant to be that. God gives his all. He demands your all. He, he calls you to die to yourself and follow him, not just when it's convenient, not just when it's culturally acceptable, but all the time, not just on a Sunday morning, all the time as you think about every minute of your life. That's the call from Leviticus chapter 11. As we move to communion, I want to have us meditate on this verse. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And the question I want us to think about as we come to the table is, am I pursuing holiness, or better, am I pursuing the holy God in every arena of my life? Or am I using him like I did back in the day before I was a Christian? I was so convicted because I was using God like a, like a gumball machine, like a vending machine. I go to God when I have a need, and I pray, I get what I need, I put him back on the shelf. And it was just deep, gentle, loving, wonderful conviction because I realized if God is God, you can't just use him like a vending machine. He is the king of all creation, Lord of everything, and rules and reigns over everything and everyone. I cannot just reduce him to that size. That's foolish. And that was a fork in the road for me. And maybe this morning there's that fork in the road. Maybe not so much coming to follow Jesus, but going next level. Particularly early on, I remember following Christ, there were forks in the road. It's almost like God saying, okay, do you want to stay here at this level? Or do you want to follow me with increasingly more of your heart? Because God wants all of your heart, all of your life. He calls you to lay it down for him. As we come now to the table, I want to invite you to meditate on this call. Be holy because I am holy. And as God lovingly convicts you, he does it out of love and grace to bring you to greater hope in him, which will ultimately satisfy you more than anything or anyone else can. Confess those to the Lord. And friends, if you have come to faith in Christ, express that through baptism. If you're going to take communion with us this morning, um, there's some elements outside. I would encourage you during this time of quiet to um, uh, pick up the cup and the bread that are outside. So let's spend some time uh, reflecting and asking God to convict us and bring us into greater alignment with him and delight in his holiness.